Cardinal Robert McElroy's recent comments on radical inclusion and synodality continue to stir controversy. Has a line been crossed into potential heresy? Bishop Thomas Paprocki of Springfield and Archbishop Joseph Nauman are here to weigh in. And communist China continues to violate human rights and religious freedom within its borders. But how is the CCP extending its influence abroad? House Foreign Affairs Committee member Congressman Chris Smith is here with a report on congressional hearings this week and an important new bill he's sponsoring the world over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. On January 24th in the Jesuit publication America, the Cardinal Archbishop of San Diego, Robert McElroy, set off a firestorm of controversy by calling for what he termed radical inclusion of marginalized groups within the church, including LGBT people, divorced individuals, and others. Some have hailed his words as progressive and welcoming, while critics say McElroy is calling for wholesale changes in the church's magisterial teaching on sexual morality. My first guest wrote a detailed column in First Things titled, Imagining a Heretical Cardinal. Here to give his perspective as a canon lawyer, civil lawyer, and chairman of the U.S. Bishop's Committee on Canonical Church Affairs and Governance, and author of the aforementioned Peace in First Things, Bishop Thomas Paprocki of Springfield, Illinois. Your Excellency, thank you for being here. Uh, I want to begin with the article, Imagining a Heretical Cardinal. Let's start uh, with the textbook definition of heresy from the Code of Canon Law. And it reads this way, the obstinate denial or obstinate doubt after the reception of baptism of some truth which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. Are you specifically here accusing Cardinal Robert McElroy of being a heretic, as some have suggested? And why write this piece now? Well, first of all, I didn't mention any names uh, in my article because I didn't want to focus on personalities here. Um, there are several cardinals, actually, that come to mind, some of them in Europe, with some of the things that uh, they have said and that I alluded to also in my article. So I, I'd rather focus on the substance of what are the, some of the things that are being uh, proposed here. And so the first one that mm -hmm. I really addressed was the idea that uh, we, we shouldn't uh, focus on being properly disposed uh, to receive Holy Communion, that, you know, basically anyone who's baptized can go to communion, um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we shouldn't have to worry about necessarily being properly disposed. Yet that is that is contrary to what St. Paul uh, wrote about uh, in the Bible. Uh, so this is something, in terms of uh, rejecting something that is in the Word of God, this is in the Bible where St. Paul uh, wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter to the Corinthians, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of Christ. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, we uh, 
we call that these days a sacrilege, that someone who receives Holy Communion while conscious of grave sin uh, and without going to confession uh, is committing a sacrilege. You're actually compounding the sin by creating another sin. And so the suggestion being forth, being put forth here that uh, we shouldn't pay attention to that whole question about repentance before receiving Holy Communion if you are mm. uh, conscious of grave sin. That's really rejecting something that has been part of the church teaching for the last 2,000 years, going all the way back to St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, now, normally, matters such as these, Bishop, are handled through private conversations, fraternal correction, where a bishop goes to another bishop and says, hey, you, you're, you may be out of line here. Uh, you've recently been quoted as saying, we've passed beyond the point of private conversations. Have you or any of your other brother bishops or priests addressed this to Cardinal McElroy personally and to some of the other bishops? I mean, you quote McElroy. You don't mention his name, but you do quote him in this piece, along with some other cardinals from Europe. What is this—why do this now in a public way? Well, I have communicated privately with, with Cardinal McElroy, and I also was part of a letter that was sent by over 100 uh, bishops and some cardinals from around the world last year that was sent to the bishops in Germany, uh, and and that was has basically been dismissed. Uh, the German uh, bishops have been advised also by uh, by the Holy See, including Pope Francis himself, about some of the direction that the Ger- German synodal path is taking. And so I, I think we're we're past the point of uh, trying to do uh, uh, private uh, communications about what is being said here, because these are very public statements that are being made. And mm-hmm. if they're not challenged publicly, then I think the, the the faithful who are reading this, all they see are the questionable statements being put out there, and they, they don't know uh, about any private communications going on here. And they think, well, if nobody is correcting these public statements, well, then maybe, maybe they're all right. Yeah, and, and Bishop, you are, I mean, in one sense, you are putting uh, everyone on notice that there are penalties that the canon law requires for those who spread heresy, spread disbelief, the opposite of, of the deposit of faith. Now, I'm sure Cardinal McElroy and others would deny that they are heretics. Does he and others have to be convinced that they are heretics in order to incur the penalty of heresy, which is what? Inform the audience, if you would. Well, the penalty of heresy, first of all, it's it's uh, it's an automatic penalty. In canon law, we call that latte sententiae, which is Latin, a Latin mm-hmm. phrase that means that it's it's basically incurred automatically. And the reason for that is someone could could actually hold heretical views and never state them publicly. So if you know in your heart that you reject mm-hmm. uh, church teaching, you basically put yourself outside of the church. Uh, now, a, a, a heretical teaching uh, can also be declared as her- heretical by the proper church authority if it becomes public. And so then I, I outline a number of different ways and consequences uh, in my article about what are the consequences uh, for a cleric uh, and, and someone, a, a cleric who's basically um, guilty of, of heresy uh, should be removed from, from, from office. And uh, um, just, but the question of whether or not someone has actually incurred that that penalty. I, I don't get into making those judgments. Uh, here I'm just pointing out mm-hmm. what are the canons, uh, but, but I think most importantly is is the content of what we're talking about here, because uh, I, I, I spoke earlier and I mentioned in my article about the whole uh, question of Eucharistic coherence, that we're not supposed to go to mm-hmm. communion unless um, 
we have repented of our sins. And uh, so you can get mm -hmm. a, then the question is, well, what are the kinds of sins that disqualify us from going to confession? And Cardinal McElroy has written in his article in America that he would like to, to see uh, less emphasis being put on sexual sins, that uh, a single sexual mm -hmm. sin should not necessarily uh, be considered as a mortal sin and therefore as uh, uh, prohibiting someone from going to Holy Communion unless they repent and um, and receive absolution. Well, to that, I, I would say, um, you know, it's basically going back to uh, a teaching that was famous uh, or, or very popular in the 60s and 70s, even in the seminaries, called the fundamental option. Fundamental option was basically, mm -hmm. as long as I, I say I love God, an individual, one one action, one sin doesn't really matter that much. And to that, mm -hmm. I, I my answer to that is the spouse test. Uh, and with, with the uh, with the sin of adultery, imagine a spouse who commits mm -hmm. adultery and then says to his wife, well, you know, it, I, it was just one little act. It was not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. I still love you. And I really doubt that uh, the wife in that case would just uh, uh, ignore it or, or brush it off as uh, this doesn't mean anything no. unless there's a profound apology and a real uh, repentance that this is not going to happen again. And I think the Lord expects no less from us. In fact, uh, uh, the re our relationship to God has been uh, compared as a relationship between a man and wife. And if if uh, a man and wife uh, do something that hurts each other, they have to apologize and they have to reconcile. And the same thing, if we do something wrong, uh, a mortal sin, if we sin gravely against God, we have to repent and we have to apologize basically yeah. in the sacrament of confession and then receive forgiveness. Well, and then you have Jesus meeting the woman, you know, in adultery, and he, he tells her, go and sin no more. I mean, there is that moment in the Scripture. It's not just there for color, uh, you know, or character study. Uh, that, that Surely there's a connective tissue there between the teaching of the church and Christ's example to us. So I, I don't quite understand what the disconnect is or the revision, this latter-day revisionism. But uh, we should take a look. You mentioned it a moment ago. Uh, at uh, San Diego Cardinal Robert McElroy's piece in America. He's urging what he calls radical inclusion of LGBT persons, other marginalized groups. Uh, here's what he said on the Jesuitical podcast shortly after the article was published. Listen. On the question of the distinction between, uh, uh, you know, activity and orientation, uh, the point I was trying to make in the article was God's embrace of LGBT uh, people, like the church's embrace, should be whether they're active or not. It, that that should not be, uh, that should not determine whether we seek to include people, reach out to them, uh, look on them as fellow strivers with strengths and weaknesses and things areas where they're doing well. Bishop, your thought here: this this concept of accompaniment is is nestled here. Uh, it's been constantly referred to during this whole synodal process. Well, yes, accompaniment and uh, inclusion are very important, and I'm not I'm not denying inclusion. People should be welcomed into the church, but then uh, the question is, what are they being welcomed to, and how are they being included? And I think it's important to note that Jesus's first words uh, in his public ministry were, "Repent and believe in the good news." He, he starts with "Repent." Uh, not with welcome. And so we, as people come to the church, 
we ask them, as, as our Lord asks everyone who comes to follow him, to turn away from your sin. And not everyone accepted that with our Lord. There are people. There were people that walked away uh, from Christ. They walked away from him because they didn't accept his what he was saying about um, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, the Eucharist, as he was talking about it. There's the great example of the, of the rich young man uh, who walks away sad from Jesus, and, and Jesus didn't run after him and say, well, wait a minute, I, I didn't mean to send you away. I, 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 maybe this is too demanding. Let me soften my message. No, Jesus let him walk away. I mean, so... We we do welcome people. We do want people to come in, uh, but we also then want them to come in not on our terms, but on Christ's terms. Now, Cardinals Hollerich, uh, Marx, and others have also stated that the Church's teaching is wrong on the inherent immorality of homosexual acts. Does this lapse into heresy, in your opinion? Well, this does contradict the basic teaching of the Church, again, going back 2,000 years. You know, we talk uh, in these days about the, the sexual revolution of the 1960s. You know, it was actually Christianity that brought about a sexual revolution uh, uh, in, in, the, in the first century, because um, many of the things that are being proposed uh, today in terms of uh, uh, free expressions of sexuality, that was very common in the, in the pagan uh, Roman Empire. And Christians came along and said, no, we're not going to live that way. Uh, men don't share their wives with, with uh, other people. And, uh, and and so they they started living in a way that was uh, faithful between a man and a wife, and was excluding sexual relationships outside of marriage. That was the first sexual re revolution, and it seems that there are people who want to uh, disregard what uh, the practice of Christianity has been for the past two thousand years and go back to the practices of the of the ancient Roman Empire. Bishop, from where I sit, I, you know, and I read, uh, you know, across the spectrum and, and, frankly, from all corners of the world, it seems this synod on synodality has really opened this Pandora's box uh, where everything is on the table suddenly. And it's almost as if churchmen are putting their markers out to claim their territory and, and stake out a position, almost like a political campaign. Is that how you're seeing it? What are the bishops telling you? you surely you've had a lot of conversations since your piece dropped. Well, first of all, I do believe in the synodal process, as I understand synod of, of listening uh, to people and, and uh, finding out where they're at. Uh, and, and, and getting advice from people. So here in my diocese, for example, as in most dioceses in the United States, we have parish pastoral councils, finance councils, diocesan councils. And, um, and so we do listen to those people. In fact, I had a synod here in my diocese. Uh, of all, all the parishes were represented in, in 2017 uh, at the synod. But a synod then is a consultative process where we talk about the teachings of the church and how we're going to implement those teachings, not how we're going to change those teachings. So it's very important that in whatever synodal process, that there be proper direction uh, that is being given mm -hmm. here. And that, that was our basically our open letter to the bishops of Germany, is, is calling on the bishops right. of Germany to give proper direction to the synodal process that's taking place there. Your Excellency, does the Church have the power to reverse the teachings of uh, uh, apostolic times on sexual morality or other matters that have already been taught or revealed? No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, when you get into this whole question of what sometimes is referred to as development of doctrine, uh, right. the person who, who is really well known about that was uh, Cardinal um, John Henry Newman, now Saint uh, John Henry Newman. Yeah. Uh, 
was uh, an Anglican priest who converted to uh, Catholicism in the 19th century. And um, he wrote on the development of doctrine uh, as uh, something that, uh, and he wrote also very shortly after the time of the uh, promulgation of the dogma on the Immaculate Conception in which uh, Pope Pius IX had consulted the laity on that. So he talks about the importance of consulting, first of all, and a good definition of consulting, where he makes the analogy, like, for example, if you're, if you're sick, you consult a doctor, and then the doctor tells you what to do. And then the doctor will consult, mm -hmm. for example, your uh, blood pressure or um, your temperature. And in that sense, he's, you're, he's just getting a reading on where are we at. And uh, St. John Henry Newman says that consulting in the church is more in the latter sense. When the hierarchy consults uh, the, the, the faithful, it's really sort of get a read. Where are people at with this? Uh, for example, with the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, were they ready to receive it? It had been a teaching of the church for, for again, for almost 2,000 years, but uh, were people receptive? Would they, or, or what would it take for a proper promulgation of this? And so I think that's the proper sense of consultation. But then Cardinal Newman was also very clear that development of doctrine never means uh, overturning a doctrine. It, you, you can't have, oh, suddenly, you know, we, we suddenly discovered that you know, there are four persons in the Trinity and not three. I mean, that that, that could never happen. Mm. Uh, the development of doctrine is where we get to a, a deeper and richer understanding of something that uh, has been a, a uh, defined teaching of the church for the last 2,000 years. Your, your Excellency, breaking just now, um, uh, Cardinal McElroy is responding to you and others who have uh, called into question some of what he put forward here. I'm going to read you a little bit of this. Um, he says here, Critics focused upon the repeated assertion that the exclusion of divorced, remarried, and LGBT Catholics from the Eucharist is a doctrinal, not a pastoral question. I would answer that Pope Francis is precisely calling us to appreciate the vital interplay between the pastoral and doctrinal aspects of Church teaching on questions just such as these. In his teachings, Pope Francis has framed a substantial pastoral theology at the heart of the life of the Church. This pastoral outlook demands that all the branches of theology attend to the concrete reality of human life and human suffering in a much more substantial way in forming doctrine. It states that the lived experience of human sinfulness and human conversion are vital to understanding the central attribute of God in relation to us, which is mercy. And I'm going to, this sums it up. The pastoral theology of Pope Francis rejects a notion of law that can be blind to the uniqueness of concrete human situations, human suffering, and human limitation. Your reaction to that? Well, I think that's a false dichotomy, and I think it's a it's a an incorrect reading of, of Pope Francis's uh, teachings. I, I don't think you can make that uh, distinction between that somehow dog, dogma or the doctrines of the Church are separate from uh, from the pastoral practice or the law of the Church. I've been teaching canon law for many years, and one of the maxims that I emphasize is that law follows theology. Uh, we canon lawyers don't sit around and just make up laws. Uh, we, we mm. the laws of the church are based on theology. So the the, the passage from First uh, Corinthians, for example, that uh, I referred to earlier from Saint Paul, really sets out the whole notion of Eucharistic coherence. Um, 
and and so the church's teachings as found in canon 915 and canon 916 about uh, receiving Holy Communion, they, they stem from the teaching of St. Paul. So to say, well, if you, if you invoke Canon 915 or 916, you're just being a legalist. No, you're going back uh, to what uh, the church has taught in that regard. And uh, specifically mm -hmm. with regard to the concept of Eucharistic coherence, that phrase itself goes back to a document from the bishops of Latin America when then Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio was uh, part of that conference, and they issued this document called the Aparecida document, in which they they were the ones who coined that phrase, Eucharistic coherence, and the importance about our actions being coherent with uh, with what we believe and what we say. Bishop, I want to step back a moment, because it seems to my eye that that footnote in Amoris Laetitia, uh, which was that uh, apostolic uh, letter the, the Holy Father issued, Pope Francis issued, that really opened the door to this entire discussion. What I mean by that is it suggested, in fact, it made room that if you are divorced from your wife and you marry someone else without an annulment and receive communion, it's perfectly acceptable or it's acceptable in some circumstances. Once you accept that, Bishop, it, doesn't it then open the door to any sexual sin being up for grabs and therefore subjective and not having fixed law in place or a fixed moral teaching? Well, I, I think people are reading too much into that footnote. For First of all, um, major church, uh, ch any changes in, in canon law are not made in a footnote. And uh, you know, Pope Francis himself, he was asked once about that footnote uh, when it was being discussed as something rather controversial. He admitted, he said, I don't even remember that footnote. And he was a bit annoyed that people were asking him about a footnote. Mm. You know, so if there's going to be some major change in in, uh, in the discipline of the church or the canon laws it's being taught, uh, normally that's done through a, a, a major document like an apostolic constitution or, or, or at least mm -hmm. a, an apostolic letter, a motu proprio. Uh, and so, again, I think people are reading into what they want uh, that footnote to say, and I think they're reading much too much into it. Cardinal McElroy here essentially is saying, you know, he lays out the argument I just read to you, and then he says, we'll have to sort this out at the synod. The idea that suddenly this synod has turned into Vatican III, and it looks like it has, everybody's throwing their grab bag at this thing, you know, ordaining women, uh, all the sexual questions are suddenly open. Uh, I, I thought all these issues were closed, but it seems they're not, at least in the minds of some. Um, your thought on where this synod is leading, or rather, how it's progressing? Well, here, here too, the Holy See has been clear in trying to give uh, guidance, uh, particularly to the bishops in Germany, that this is not some kind of a parliamentary process where uh, we're just going to open this up to debate and then there'll be proposals that'll be voted on and then these will be binding uh, proposals. So uh, unfortunately, that, that guidance from the Holy See is is, is being ignored. And, and so I think it's uh, we're, we're in a very uh, uh, difficult moment in the, in the church right now uh, because we do have things that are being put out there that are frankly just contrary to church teaching and the the life of the church as it has been lived for almost 2,000 years now. And uh, that's why I think it's important uh, for um, bishops to speak out about, uh, and, and for theologians and others in the church to speak out about what what is the teaching of the church, what is the correct understanding of the church, 
and and not to be su suggesting that somehow this is all up for grabs and can be uh, overturned yeah. uh, by a by a synodal process. Bishop, uh, following that, a uh, allegedly Catholic theologian, a guy named Rich Rejo, I don't really know him, uh, he tweeted this uh, in response to your critique of uh, the, the heresy and, and what's happened, these ideas that we see floating around the church. He says, quote, calling a newly made cardinal a heretic is a full attack on the pontificate of Francis who has the distinct duty and freedom to appoint whomever he wishes to the College of Cardinals. Such a claim comes from someone who doesn't understand development of doctrine or synodality. How would you respond to that and uh, put it in the context of Arianism? I mean, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of uh, Arian bishops that I assume popes appointed. Well, yes, uh, and I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, again, to, to say that, uh, in a situation that I, I I don't want to focus on personalities, I said that earlier, and I I want to really right. focus on what is being uh, taught here. What are the things that are being proposed, mm -hmm. uh, rather than getting into uh, you know a, a particular personality or or names of people that are being proposed here. Again, I think um, what this particular um, posting on Twitter is suggesting are, are are some false ideas of development of doctrine and of synodality, as I referred to uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And, and and the historical precedent is does not bode well in his favor. Uh, before we run out of time, I have to ask you about the ongoing restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass by the Vatican. As a bishop, you're charged with implementing Traditiones Custodis. How have you and the faithful of your diocese uh, received these new restrictions on the old mass? And was there anything in the sacred constitution of the liturgy of Vatican II mandating stamping out the Tridentine rite? Uh, no, there wasn't. And Pope Benedict XVI was actually rather clear about that when he said that the uh, the traditional uh, rite, the Tridentine rite uh, mass, as we call it, was, was never abolished. And so in my diocese, what we were able to do is we have the... Uh, a priestly fraternity of St. Peter, uh, staffs a parish in Quincy, Illinois, and Pope Francis himself gave permission for the priestly fraternity of St. Peter to keep doing uh, what they've been doing. They do mass and the sacraments only in the uh, traditional rites. Mm -hmm. And then I have another parish um, in Springfield, uh, which has two churches. My predecessor merged two, two parishes together, and but he kept the two churches open. And so when uh, the um, uh, the Holy Father and his motu proprio Traditionus Custodis said that you can't have the traditional Latin Mass in a parochial church. I simply designated one of those churches as non-parochial, and uh, so uh, therefore we're in compliance with that decree. Having said that, you know I know several other uh, bishops that have given that dispensation. Uh, uh, Canon 87 says that a bishop can dispense even from universal law of the church for the spiritual good of the church unless it is reserved. Uh, to the Holy See. And uh, so the most recent rescript that Cardinal Roach, Cardinal Arch Arthur Roach, the prefect for the Dicastery for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, uh, he received uh, a rescript from the Holy Father. First of all, a rescript is something that is given at request. So this was not at the Pope's okay. initiative, unlike a motu proprio, which is by the Pope's initiative. So Cardinal Roach asked for uh, this rescript that would reserve that dispensation to the uh, to the apostolic see, and and he received that from the pope. So that it, that means from now on uh, that you cannot uh, a bishop cannot 
issue such a dispensation uh, in his diocese. However, I would argue Canon 9 says that uh, uh, laws in the church are not retroactive, so any dispensations that have already been given uh, remain uh, in effect. But I would also, uh, so mm. I recognize the validity of this new rescript and the restriction that is being placed upon diocesan bishops, but I do question uh, the pastoral wisdom of that. Uh, first of all, it seems to contradict mm -hmm. what Pope Francis himself said when he issued the mode proprio that he said, this is up to you bishops. You bishops should be deciding on a case-by-case -case basis on what's happening in your diocese. And here you've mm -hmm. got, with this uh, new restriction, that these decisions will now be made by the prefect for the dicastery uh, for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments. You've got that a prefect in Rome basically making decisions about uh, what's happening in a local diocese and in local parishes. And I think that violates the, the what we call the principle of subsidiarity, that really uh, decisions yeah. should be made at, at a local level un, unless uh, there's an overriding reading and uh, reason. And I've, I've yet to see what that reason would be for why this would be reserved to the Holy See. Yeah. The, Bishop, I have to tell you, as a member of the laity, and if you could see my inbox, my emails, and, the, and my the, the actual snail mailbox, it is loaded with correspondence from people who are just heartbroken over this. And, and their feeling is, and these are faithful Catholics, these are not radicals or people trying to overturn Vatican II or whatever the line has been. In fact, there was no real polling of that. The polling among the bishops showed the opposite effect of the wide use of the extraordinary right. But it seems now, with Cardinal McElroy and others, you have this price is right mentality when it comes to, you know, moral law, where you can flout the moral law sleep around with whoever you want, and it's come on down. But the moment you try to be a faithful Catholic and follow the ancient rites of the, of the church and the liturgy, somehow you're a leper and unclean. And by the way, you shouldn't even come in the parish. I mean, this is bizarre pastoral accompaniment just from a lay perspective. So I'll get off my soapbox. Your Excellency, we will leave it there. Imagining a heretical cardinal, the fascinating column by Bishop Thomas Paprocki can be found at firstthings.com. I'll also post it on my social media. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. God bless you. I want to go now to Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, Kansas. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Um, you first responded to Cardinal McElroy's uh, assertions on February 10th. You wrote a column for Catholic World Report titled, Radical Inclusion Leads to Moral Confusion. In it, you wrote this, Cardinal McElroy appears to believe that the Church for 2,000 years has exaggerated the importance of her sexual moral teaching, and that radical inclusion supersedes doctrinal fidelity, especially in the area of the Church's moral teaching regarding human sexuality. Uh, Archbishop, I just spoke to Bishop Thomas Paprocki about the canonical aspects of what the Cardinal seems to be calling for here. But I want to get your thoughts on the pastoral uh, ramifications of this, the confusion that McElroy and this synodal process seems to be sowing. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, uh, in the article, I, I'm a product of the 1960s. I came of age at, at that time, and it was a time of great moral confusion, and many of my contemporaries, I think, became victims of that confusion. And, and for decades, you know, I think um, Pope John Paul and then Pope Benedict uh, have tried to to correct that in the church. And it seems that these voices now are trying to reinsert this confusion amongst people. And 
as I, I note in the article, it, to my mind, there are many, many victims of the sexual revolution. And why we would want to go back to that state of confusion, to me, I, I, I think is, is a, a terrible uh, direction for the church to go. Yeah. Well, Archbishop, the question is, you know, has church teaching on sexual morality been an error for, for these, you know, millennium? Or is the church in danger of capitulating to the fashions of the culture, the dictatorship of relativism, as Benedict XVI uh, so eloquently framed it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the church has been an error, frankly. And, uh, you know, God gives us these laws, these teachings for our protection. And, and I, I think we can see all around us the victims of this uh, when we depart from those moral teachings, and we see it in our culture and society today, if if sexual intimacy and expression is the most important thing for human happiness, we should be the happiest culture in the world. Uh, and yet we see rising rates of depression, anxiety, even suicide rates. So, um, no, I don't think the church has been in error uh, it's always been countercultural from the very beginning, and it was really the church's moral teaching and the way it was lived out in marriage and family life that drew so many to the gospel at the very beginning. Archbishop, uh, we keep hearing um, accompanying, if you will, all of these calls to overturn church teaching. Accompaniment itself and the synodal documents are often quoted that, you know, uh, that there, there really is no way to go forward without accompanying those in deep sin and therefore sort of making a pact with the sin rather than calling them to conversion. Is that what the synodal process is supposed to be about or is that what it's really about? Well, I certainly hope not. And I don't think that's what Pope Francis has said. You know, he he has said repeatedly that this isn't about changing doctrine or moral teaching. And, and yet some of the voices um, would, I think some would like to hijack the Senate for those purposes. Um, so I, I, as, um, as a bishop, I think it's important for my own flock. And the column was originally written for the people of my archdiocese. I have a responsibility to, to protect them from confusion about these basic teachings. Now, you know, as I say in the column, we see every human being uh, as made in the divine image and one for which Jesus Christ gave his life. So we, we respect every human being, but we don't respect every action that human beings may choose to take because they're harmful to them and they're harmful to culture. Uh, why do you think Archbishop, and I imagine it's why you put pen to paper and responded uh, so directly to this. Um, why is there not more of a corrective coming from Rome? Uh, I, I am stunned that the, the moral fallout, the corruption of souls, if you will, and the seeding of heresy is where these ideas could lead. So I guess you decided you had to sort of warn your flock of, of, of this and put them on notice about what the church actually teaches. Why isn't Rome, do you think, more engaged on this question and others like it? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that, Raymond. I mean, I, the Pope, uh, in the case of the German bishops, you know, has tried to rein them in. But 
um, they seem to reject it. Um, and so I, I think um, I think the the Holy See has taken some efforts and initiatives, but I think in my own uh, pastoral care of my people, I think we have to be very clear on this because without that clarity, our young people particularly are vulnerable to fall into this confusion that um, the, this sexual immorality isn't all that harmful. And it's it's extremely harmful. Um, we just had a retreat here for adult children of divorce, which is a whole group of people that, again, I think are victims of the sexual revolution and that we ignore, that people don't want to address. Um, but there, there's ramifications, particularly within the family, when we don't uphold uh, the moral values that Jesus himself has given to us. Your Excellency, uh, you are not alone in your criticism of Cardinal McElroy, uh, Bishop Robert Barron, Archbishop uh, Samuel Aquila, uh, uh, Bishop James Conley, and my previous guest have all gone on record to denounce McElroy's assertions here. Uh, and there have been uh, some media pushback from progressive circles. I want to ask you one thing. Now you have Bishop McElroy today, uh, Cardinal McElroy, rather, responding to you all. And the upshot of this seems to be, look, we have to have this larger discussion at the Synod. He's basically opening this up and saying, look, that's what the Synod exists for, for all of these ideas to kind of be stirred around. Is Are you concerned that we're now basically doing let's make a moral deal here at the Synod, that any every idea is equal and somehow the ancient eternal teachings of the Church, the teachings of Jesus Christ himself, are somehow up for revision or have been wrong all along? Well, again, that's my understanding of synods. They really don't have the authority to do that. And the Holy Father himself has said that's not what the synod is called for. So um, I think uh, I haven't read his recent article um, but uh, I, I think that's not an acceptable answer. We have to be clear in our moral teaching, I think, all bishops. And I don't like uh, correcting another bishop or and certainly a cardinal uh, on this, but I think the stakes are too high to be, to be silent on this. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I agree with him that we need to have pastoral outreach to all of all of these groups of people, but that's sure. not the same as saying then we compromise our, our moral teaching and we minimize the harm that when we violate these moral norms, that happens to the individual and to others. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, uh, Archbishop, I want to read you just a little line here. And again, this is just dropping, you know, before showtime here. It says, in principle, all sexual sins are objective. This is Cardinal McElroy. Uh, all sexual sins are objective moral sins within the Catholic moral tradition. This means that all sins violate the Sixth and Ninth uh, Commandments. There is no such comprehensive classification of mortal sin. In understanding the application of this principle to the reception of communion, it's vital to recognize that it is the level of objective sinfulness that forms the foundation of the present categorical exclusion of sexually active, divorced, and remarried, or LGBT Catholics from the Eucharist. He seems to be trying to create space here, piggybacking, if you will, 
on Amoris Laetitia's uh, opening to divorced and remarried Catholics and trying to extend that to members of the LGBT community. Your thoughts on that vision for the church and moral teaching? Yeah, I mean, I think what he seems to say is, well, we don't know the subjective uh, motivation of the people that are engaging in, in these actions. And um, mm -hmm. that may be true, but we have to be clear on the actions themselves and, and that they are harmful, they are destructive. And again, I, I think we see that in our society today. The hookup culture has not served us well, um, nor has, you know, I think to encourage individuals with same-sex attraction to engage in sexual intimacy. I mean, during the AIDS epidemic, we I think we really failed the same-sex community, those that have same-sex attraction, by not being clear on the on just the public health danger that they were inflicting on themselves. And many died because we weren't clear in that teaching. So um I think we have an obligation to to be clear in our teaching. Um, yes, we want to work with those that have difficulty with it. We're all sinners. We all need uh, the mercy of God. Uh, but we don't help others by in encouraging them in behaviors that are are harmful and sinful. Before we run out of time, Archbishop, I want to get your thoughts on something Rome definitely has no problem calling out and coming out against, apparently, the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, as the shepherd of your diocese, you are charged with implementing uh, Tradiciones Custodes, the latest rescript, uh, restricting um, and suppressing, in some instances, the old Roman rite, the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, have those communities embracing that extraordinary form of the liturgy, has it caused any division and disunity in your archdiocese? It hasn't impacted us to a great deal. We were blessed to have the fraternity of St. Peter here that has two communities. And, you know, I would say the people in those communities, I find them to be very sincere and and they love the Lord, they love the Church, they love the Eucharist. I think what the Pope was trying initially to correct is there there was an attitude, I think, amongst some, that there was a superiority to the to the Trinitine Mass to the Novus Ordo, and I think that that was an error. But um, I, I I don't think that's how most people in those communities uh, see things, and I think uh, they're confused by. Uh, the limitations that are being put upon even bishops in, in making pastoral judgments. Very good. Bishop, we thank you so much for joining us. Um, Archbishop Joseph Nauman, we'll leave it there. Radical inclusion leads to moral confusion uh, can be found at catholicworldreport.com. Thank you again for being here. Thanks, Raymond. God bless. And we are just weeks away from the release of my new picture book, the first installment of my Turnabout Tales series, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. It hits stores March 
21st. In it, I try to capture a forgotten and critical historical moment, a moment of crisis in the young life of Thomas Edison and how he navigated that crisis to become the world's greatest inventor. It's a real inspiration. You can pre-order it now at Amazon, EWTN's catalog, Barnes & Noble. I'm doing a premier collectibles event as well where I'm signing copies. You can join that live. That's on my website. We have a motto at the Turnabout Tales series, and this is the first of that series. Challenges faced, paths changed, and history turned. Get the unexpected light of Thomas Alva Edison for the young person in your life. Turnabout tales are all around us. I hope you find yours. Visit RaymondArroyo.com for all the tour details and much more information. I'm going to start the tour in the middle of March. I hope you'll come out and see me. Lawmakers from both parties of Congress met this week for hearings on the threat posed to the United States by the Chinese Communist Party. The House Select Committee on China is a somewhat rare example of unity in a sharply divided Congress. Just how much of a threat is the CCP to the U.S. and its interests? And what of the chilling accounts we're hearing about human trafficking and organ harvesting within China? Joining me to discuss is U.S. Congressman from New Jersey, senior member of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, Chris Smith. Congressman, thank you for being here. Uh, in the wake of the spy balloon controversy uh, here in the U.S., tell us a little about this special House Committee on China. It convened this week, and uh, what do you hope it achieves? Well, it's, it's an excellent idea that came from the Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, it is a select committee, which adds an additional set of eyes and ears and a probe into what I consider an existential threat uh, to the world, including the United States, poised by, by the People's Republic of China. The Chinese Communist Party uh, has treated its people so horribly. I mean, name the abuse, forced abortion, pervasive use of torture, gulags, concentration camps, the ongoing repression of all faiths, including uh, Catholic, Christian, uh, Falun Gong, Everyone is repressed in a very, very aggressive way. And now, uh, I mean, I chair a different commission. It's called the China Executive Commission. It's been in existence for 20 years. And it, ours is bicameral. We have senators and House members. Uh, so now we have another set of eyes and ears as we need uh, to expose the horrific actions by Xi Jinping, the dictator of China. Uh, Congressman, I'm going to get to the bill that you're sponsoring, and it's an important one, in a moment. Your hearing uh, focused this week on the economic might of China. Tong Yi, a human rights activist, testified at the hearing and had this to say. In the U.S., we need to face the fact that we have helped to feed the baby dragon of the CCP until it has grown into what it now is. Since the 1990s, U.S. companies have enriched themselves by exploiting cheap labor in China and have, in the process, also enriched the CCP. Congressman, talk about the economic power that the United States has really granted China and empowered and emboldened them despite the human rights record, including to this very day with companies like the NBA and Disney and others. Well, Raymond, you know, it was Lenin, we believe it was Lenin who actually said, uh, there's a paraphrase, we'll hang the West and they'll sell us the rope. Problem is we have the wrong country. Mm. It is China. Our businesses and unfortunately a great number of politicians, Bill Clinton, in my opinion, was the worst because he de-linked human rights from trade. 
on May 26, 1994. And when he did that, it became open season to repress while having no penalty whatsoever uh, with regards to their ability to export. And they are an exporting country. Without that, uh, they don't have an economy. And uh, I've introduced legislation uh, to reimpose uh, the linkage between trading and human rights. Uh, I've, I've met with the members of the, uh, of, of the uh, Ways and Means Committee, including its chairman, uh, just last week, uh, to say, you know, at our own peril, and of course, the terrible things that have happened to the Chinese people, the exploitation of labor, sweatshops, uh, and all the other human rights abuses, uh, we've enabled that. Maybe unwittingly, maybe every, well, everybody didn't know in the 90s. I certainly knew, and I said it. I did a press conference right after Bill Clinton delinked human rights and trade and said, we just lost China. It's on C-SPAN. People can watch mm. it. May 26, 1994. Um, we lost China, and we sold out the people of China for money. I'm all for trade as long as there are conditionality yeah. and conditions affixed to it. And one last thing, Raymond. Raymond, they were able to get all kinds of, of capability that is dual use for their military. Why does just about everything over there look just like ours? Fighter jets, uh, the cruise missiles, they either stole it or we sold it to them. Uh, just so naive and, and you know, short-sighted on the part of the U.S. government and especially uh, yeah. our big corporate partners and players. Well, and ultimately self-defeating. And you have, you have uh, Xi Jinping this week telling the military, uh, be ready for 2027. I don't know what he envisions for 2027, but do you, I'm sure you saw that report. Yes, I did. Oh, he has been making bellicose statements just ongoing. Matter of fact, I read the People's Daily and, and, and other organs of their propaganda almost every day. They continually say, continuously, say to the people of Taiwan, don't expect any help from the United States of America. Look what they did in Afghanistan. They left their own Americans behind, and they left their allies. So you people in Taiwan, don't hold your breath. America won't be there. So the whole idea of deterrence to Xi Jinping of the American relationship with Taiwan has been undermined by President Biden, and I find that uh, unconscionable. Mm -hmm. and, and so they are preparing. They are building up. We have to build up uh, to deter uh, hostilities. You know, the, the hegemony that they are practicing in the region towards the Philippines, towards South Korea, towards Japan and other uh, nations, the ASEAN nations, uh, is, is palatable. They threaten them every day. And uh, they say, again, America is not your trustworthy ally. Congressman, China's long been committing this genocide against the Uyghur Muslims, documentation yes. of mass concentration camps. Um, China's record on human trafficking is also well known, okay. which brings us to an important bill you've proposed, H.R. 1154, the Stopped Forced Organ Harvesting Act of 2023. Now, the U.N. has reported that human trafficking for the express purpose a forced organ removal is a billion-dollar criminal enterprise. How does this bill stop it, and how is the Chinese government involved? Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Raymond. I've been raising the issue of forced organ trafficking. I wrote our trafficking laws for the United States, TVPA in 2000. It's our main trafficking law. I've been unable to get focus on what's happening with forced organs transfer, where they kill people, murder them to get two, three or more organs out of their body for transplantation. They target the Falun Gong, the Christians, the Tibetan Buddhists, and of course the Uyghurs 
and that number is about 25 to 50,000 of the Uyghurs, the Muslims, uh, and, and they've been doing it for years. My first hearing on this was 25 years ago when it was a nascent effort by the Chinese Communist Party to kill some prisoners to get their organs. Now it's a full-scale industrial size, uh, up to 100,000 murders per year to get their organs. My bill would require that the U.S. Department of State uh, do a very comprehensive series of reporting on all of this, but most importantly will sanction anyone who is in the supply chain. It'll say they can't, they're inadmissible to the United States, they can't come here, they get no visa, and above all, they can't do any kind of business here. It's the beginning of an effort to try to say zero tolerance on killing people to get their organs. Who's benefiting from the forced harvesting well, of great question organs? again. Raymond, the, the Chinese Communist Party makes billions. You know, the UN number you gave, and I've seen that number as well, they call that a tip yeah. of the iceberg. Uh, they get billions and billions from it, from the sale of these organs. But for anybody in the Chinese wow. Communist Party who needs an organ, uh, like a liver or a heart or a lung, uh, they go to Hospital 301 in Beijing or a few other hospitals in that chain, and they get it. So Xi Jinping himself, who hates the Falun Gong, who hates Christians, who hates the Muslims, he gets sick and he wants a, an organ, he goes to this military hospital called the 301 Hospital, uh, and he gets it from one of the most impressed people uh, in China. And the average age is 28 years old. And they target people who are very healthy, uh, and that is people of faith, uh, and they, they take their organs. So they benefit both ways. They get you know, longevity for themselves, and re kind of like repair kits. I'm not against transplantation. It has to be ethical. You don't kill people to get their organs. This is reminiscent of Joseph Mengele in, in Nazi Germany, the same kind of bizarre uh, kind of exploitation of people. And it's happening every day in China. Yep. And we're talking, again, 100,000, up to 100,000 every year. Well, and, and, and we continue to do business with them and support this regime that's enslaving people, crushing human rights, rounding up great and good men and women in, exactly. in Hong Kong, Jimmy Lai and, and Cardinal Zen oh, and others. Great I mean, it, uh, how, this, how we can do this in conscience and just forget about the moral and human weight and toll of this is beyond me. And, and yet... Most in the media just look the other way. Congressman, before we go, I must get yes. your reaction to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, he was on Capitol Hill this week. He explained why the FBI has failed to prosecute the attacks on crisis pregnancy centers in Catholic churches in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Watch this. There are many more prosecutions with respect uh, to the um, uh, blocking of the, uh, uh, of the abortion centers. But that is generally because they are, those actions are taken in, uh, with photography at the time, um, uh, during the daylight, and uh, seeing the person who did it is uh, quite easy. Um, the, those who are attacking the pregnancy resources centers, uh, which is a, a horrid thing to do, are doing this at night um, in the dark. We have put full resources on this. Congressman Smith, I guess the FBI has finally run into an insurmountable foe, nightfall. What do you make of that excuse? Oh, well put, well put. You know, it, it is unbelievable that the top law enforcement person in the United States of America, Garland, could say something like that. 
Uh, you know, we have called on, we passed a, a piece of legislation, Mike Johnson authored it on the House, calling on uh, the Attorney General to finally end the Biden administration to prosecute these people. They're firebombing pregnancy care centers. They're going after churches, Catholic churches in particular, defacing them, causing unbelievable harm. And, and they just uh, look the other way. It is prosecutorial discretion at its worst, where they're saying, hey, we don't agree with them. They're pro-life, and therefore they could be susceptible uh, to these attacks. Congressman Chris Smith, we will leave it there. Thank you for the time, and we'll check in with you soon. Thank you so much, Raymond, for having us. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we will be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for joining us. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.